You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. My people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful to be gathered here this morning. We don't want to take this for granted. In fact, if there is one who is gathered this morning who is overcome with the the worries and concerns of life. Perhaps uh, this week has been a particularly difficult and challenging week for a brother or sister here. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet them in this moment, that you would bring grace, uh, that you would give them ears to hear the word, even though they didn't come uh, looking forward to it. Father, I pray this morning as we focus on what your word has to say just in part about the next generation Uh, that we would realize that this is a sermon for everyone. While it has immediate and obvious application to parents, it has application as well to the whole church, to grandparents, to aunts, to uncles. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and you would do what we just ask you to do through singing, and that is plant it deep within our hearts so that it might change us and conform us, shape us and mold us, that it would not be the culture around us in the world that shapes us and conforms us, but it would be your holy word. This is what we want. This is what we desire. This is what we cannot do for ourselves. So we need you, Holy Spirit, to work in power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I and my three brothers were all fairly young, my parents established a weekly routine where every Sunday night after we would return from our church's evening service, my mom would pull together a whole bunch of snack foods and we would all sit down and watch the wonderful world of Disney. Now, one of my... uh, er, our collective favorite Disney movies, and far and away my dad's favorite, was a movie called Follow Me, Boys. Now, I would be shocked if more than two or three of you had any idea what I'm talking about. But here's a quick synopsis of the movie. The main character is a man named Lem, and he's a saxophonist in a traveling band who dreams of becoming a lawyer. One day when the band's bus makes a quick stop in a small 
town called Hickory Lem suddenly decides to leave the band to settle down. Seems like a nice place. There's a help-wanted poster in a window. Everything is coming together for Lem. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie for all of you who are planning already to go home and find it online, but I am going to spoil it. Lem finds out that the boys of Hickory are a little mischievous and rowdy, and they need some structure and discipline. So what does he do? He starts a Boy Scout troop. And the movie catalogs all the ways Lem molds the boys of Hickory into disciplined and respectful young men. Along the way, there is a, there's a special song he sings as the boys march behind him. The song is call, called, Follow Me, Boys. But of course, as you watch the movie unfold, it's more than a song. It's actually a summary of everything Lem has invested his life in. He's providing an example for the young men to follow. Follow me, boys. Friends, this idea is at the very heart of biblical discipleship, isn't it? I think this is why my dad loved the movie. It summarized his approach to raising four boys. As he followed Jesus, he invited his sons to follow him. Follow me, boys. Again, this pattern is thoroughly biblical. In fact, it's precisely what Jesus said to his first disciples, isn't it? Matthew chapter 4 records, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Listen also to the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Our desire at Redeemer is to make disciples who make disciples. To have a small army of rescued sinners who are seeking to rescue other sinners. Followers of Christ working to help others follow Christ. This is the normal pattern we find throughout God's word. Simply put, we believe that every Christian ought to be helping someone else follow Jesus. I remember hearing Mark Dever say one time, quote, if you aren't helping other people follow Jesus, then I don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. To be his follower is to help others follow him. Isn't this what we've seen in our study through the first 15 chapters of Acts? In response to Jesus' great commission, Acts is the account of Christians making more Christians and helping each other live like Christians. Right? You can see the beauty and simplicity of the church of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. Friends, like the early church, I think we need to consider this question. How can we walk in their footsteps? How can Redeemer nurture a culture of discipleship? How can we become a church where every believer is learning and growing in Christ 
and helping somebody else do the same thing. Every person. If you read through the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, the undeniable pattern you will find is that every true disciple is also a discipler. Right? The gospel is not something that you were given simply for your own personal enjoyment. It was given to you so that you could be a mouthpiece for this gospel. So that you could say to others, follow me as I follow Christ. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to spend our time looking at discipleship in the two major arenas we find in Scripture. The home and the church. And then I want to see how these two arenas intersect with each other. And as we do this, you'll hear a major element of our vision as a church. So first, discipleship in the home. Discipleship in the home. We'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, so flip there. If you will, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then we'll make our way to Psalm 78. Discipleship in the home. I would argue that there is no single factor, no single factor factor that will help create a culture of discipleship in this church more than if parents are actively discipling their own children. So Deuteronomy 6, so instructional for us. It's a foundational text in so many ways. Regarding verses 4 through 9, Old Testament scholar Stephen Dempster writes, these verses constitute the foremost text in Judaism. This is called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, the first word of verse 4. This is one of the three texts in Orthodox Judaism to be recited every day. And Dempster also notes Jesus, when he cited this in Mark 12, 29 and 30, agreed that this particular text is the most important commandment. Friends, this is also the text that Paul undoubtedly had in mind when he encouraged parents in Ephesians 6 to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you look at Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, you can can find the connection pretty easily between these two texts. But look with me at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's design and intention is that every Christian home be a discipleship center. I want you to see from this text who is to lead the discipleship of the family. It's the Father. Men, God does not intend for you to outsource the discipleship of your children. It is your sober duty before God. So, Too many fathers, we, we know this, too many fathers, and, and I understand the temptation because I feel it myself, But too many fathers assume the discipleship of their children. They're being raised in a Christian home. We have Christian friends. They go to church. I assume that it's happening. That kind of investment 
from fathers in their children does not reflect the intentionality that we see in a text like Deuteronomy 6. Here's what I mean. Look again at verse 7. We find something that is deliberate, right? It's not happening by mistake. You shall teach them diligently. That means in a hardworking and persistent way. Something you're working at. Something you want to improve on. You're reading and studying on your own to develop your own skills and abilities to be able to teach and instruct your children. You're feeding your own mind and heart on the deep truths of God's word so you have something to give them. And notice what you're teaching. The things commanded, namely, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and might. This is what every Christian parent, especially fathers, ought to persistently be teaching their children. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said in the late 18th century. This is what he told his congregation. Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his rules. Family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. So you might hear that and wonder if the discipleship of my children is so important, then how do I do it? Well, look back at our text. Here is the elaborate strategy. Look at verse 7 again. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So there it is. That's a pretty accessible strategy. We might rephrase verse 7 this way. Parents, teach your children diligently by connecting everything in life to the reality of Christ's lordship over it. And encourage your children through everyday conversations to love God supremely and worship Him eternally. Ted Tripp says it this way, and and just a word to fellow parents. I I want you to grasp what Tripp says here, because I believe it will have a profound effect on how you think about everything related to your children. How you think about work how you think about relationships, how you think about video games, how you think about sports, how you think about phone use, how you think about music. You can fill in the, you can fill in the blank with a thousand different things. But I want you to hear what Tripp says. And, and this is why a text like Deuteronomy 6 and then Psalm 78 is so important. This is why children's ministry at Redeemer is so important because of this reality. Listen to what Tripp, Ted Tripp writes. Our children go into the world every single day to find things to marvel at. They are on the lookout to be impressed by something. They love to be dazzled by things in their surroundings. But not only are our children this way. We were all made to be dazzled. 
were made to stand back and gape, to wonder and be overwhelmed by the glory and goodness and greatness of God, were uniquely designed to respond to this awesome glory with worship, adoration, reverence, and being awestruck with God's glory. We're made for worship. But what happens? What happens when people who are instinctively and compulsively worshipers fail to worship God? Well, we simply worship something else in this place. We don't cease to be worshipers. We get impressed by things and people and experiences in creation. We get dazzled by idols. But the glory of God is displayed through the things God has made. So parents, you cannot force your children to worship God, but you can invite it, right? You can nurture amazement in God. You can foster a sense of wonder in the gospel. And you can do this in the normal course of life. So mom and dad, you don't have to be a trained theologian to point out to your children that God made trees and grass and rocks and bugs and football and relationships and jobs and ice cream and beautiful music, all for his glory. He created these things so that they would glorify him. So you as a parent simply have to connect the dots. But you should be looking for every opportunity to put before your children the dazzling majesty of God so that their hearts won't be pulled away and be dazzled by other things. You want to show them the evidence of God all around them. You want to show them His divine fingerprints. They're everywhere. My son Gideon yesterday found out that cicadas shed their shell or skin or exterior and he started collecting these, much to the horror of his sisters. <laughs> and he collected them in a bag. And I don't know how many there are now, but he was so proud of things. He was marveling at what God had created in a bug. And then wanted to tape them to the front door to welcome everybody that comes to our home. But this is, what, this is the opportunity we have as parents, isn't it? God has created this unbelievable world. And, and we need to be engaged and intentional, pointing out God's fingerprints everywhere. So parents, I, I plead with you, be intentional. Teach your children diligently to love God with all their heart, soul, and might. Point them every chance you get to the greatness of God and the beauty of His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, dazzle them. Dazzle them with the splendor and majesty of the triune God. So one of the things I pray as a father is that my, my kids would be so dazzled with the glory and the greatness of God that when they're faced with the temptation to worship something else, they'll see it in comparison to God and realize that doesn't deserve my worship at all. Now, that's a work of God. That's something the Holy Spirit has to accomplish. But, but I can do my part to constantly put God before them 
And to do that through teaching them, reading the word to them. So we could boil down the instruction to parents in Deuteronomy 6 as follows. Mom and dad, love God with your whole heart, but love him in the presence of your children. Love him obviously. Love him openly. Speak of God often. Here's probably the shortest way to say it. Parents, remember the Lord so that your children will never forget him. Remember the Lord so that your children will never forget him. Let me also say, if you're a single parent here this morning, God does not limit the grace that he has for you. He can and will work just as mightily in your family as any other family. No matter the circumstances you have faced, God is for you as a Christian parent and his grace is sufficient. So God is not stingy with his grace for you. So be encouraged, even as you walk through this, perhaps your heart is is pushed to reflect on the circumstances of your life, and that's difficult. I want you to be encouraged. God's grace is sufficient for you. If you're sitting here listening to me right now and you know that what we've been talking about has not marked your parenting, first thing I would say is join the club. Second thing I would say is I would invite you. I would invite you to pray for God's grace to change. I invite you to ask for help. But whatever you do, purpose today that you will fulfill your primary responsibility as a parent to actively and intentionally disciple your children to love and worship God. Turn forward now in your Bible to Psalm 78, the text we heard earlier. You'll find a very similar emphasis as we just saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me read it again. Beginning in verse 1, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. Children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Again, what do we see emphasized in this psalm? Parents, do not hide what you know is true about God, both by knowledge and experience, but rather, we, we see this repeated, tell, tell. Tell, tell it to your children. Tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord. Tell them the wonders he has done. Open your mouth and speak of his greatness. Now, there's a 
there's a startling implication here. Parents, if you're not telling these things, then what are you doing according to the text? Verse 4. If you're not telling them, you're hiding them. You're hiding them. So parents, let that sink in for a moment. If you are not actively telling your children the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done, then you are hiding. You're hiding from your children the greatest news in the universe, the news that can change the course of their eternity. You have it. But if you're not telling it, you're hiding it. Why must you tell your children these truths and not hide them? Well, look at verse 7. So that they will set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Parents, what an amazing opportunity we all have. And, and when I say parents, I please, if you're a grandparent here, apply this to your, your life as well. What an amazing opportunity we have. As we tell our children the works and wonders of God through the power of God's Spirit, our children are being led to set their hope in God. That's what we want. right? We're, we're told by the culture around us and a lot of our own Christian friends that we owe our children all the opportunities that we never had. Now, without getting into all the specifics of, of what those might be, let me just push those to the side and say you have one primary responsibility to your children. They need one thing from you over and above everything else. You owe this to them as a Christian parent. Put before them the glory of God. Put before them the beauty of the gospel. I think it was Vodi Bakum that says, if you teach your son or daughter to keep their eye on the ball, but not on Jesus, then you have failed. I think that's a good encouragement. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that Redeemer will be a church that treasures children that we will love and nurture them, that we will equip and encourage parents in this monumental and eternally important task of discipleship. So I mentioned earlier that God's word gives us two primary settings for discipleship, the home and the church. So I want you to listen to a number of passages in just a moment that address the culture of discipleship that should exist within the church. And I want us to avoid two errors we want to avoid exalting the family in such a way that we diminish the importance of the church. But we also want to avoid so elevating the church that we diminish the necessary role of the family. So we want to affirm God's good plan to bring the family and the church together to help and encourage each other to work together to see generation after generation put their hope in God. And I want, you to, I want you to see how amazing this plan is. And I'm using that word intentionally. This is an amazing plan. 
as God redeems a people for himself and gathers them into local churches, and then he blesses those churches with the gift of children, he has designed a plan that involves everyone. It involves everyone in the process of raising those children to know and love Jesus. That's awesome. It's not always easy. It's not without some difficulty. But that's an awesome plan. So this is, this is one of the reasons we should have so many people volunteer every year to work in our children's ministry that we have to turn some away. Right? Think about this. God has given every believer here an opportunity to invest in the next generation. In fact, he's commanded it. So not, not babysitting them or simply keeping them occupied on a Sunday morning, but our children's ministry is designed to do everything we just talked about in Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78. So working in children's ministry at Redeemer simply means that you are taking advantage of a ministry platform to tell children about what you love most. About what you find more dazzling than anything else. You get to tell children week after week about God's love in Jesus. I can't think of anything more worthy of your time and energy, brothers and sisters, than teaching children about Jesus. And as a parent, I would say this is, this is one of the great gifts of the church. Is that when my children come home and I get to ask them, what did you hear about today? Who was your teacher today? And they tell me. And I marvel at God's kindness to my own family in, in all these different people who are investing in my children helping me in this great task of discipling them. So This is how the home and the church work together. But let's drill in a little bit more by looking more intently at discipleship in the church. Listen to the following text and let them, let them serve as individual puzzle pieces and then put them together and see if a picture develops. Romans chapter 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You realize in that text, 2 Timothy 2, 2, there are three generations in view. Paul invested in Timothy, and now Timothy is to do the same thing for others. He is supposed to pass on to others what he has received. Brothers and sisters, this is a pattern for us. What you have received, you are supposed to pass on to someone else. Creating a chain of discipleship that will ultimately span generations. Again, this is what we long for at Redeemer. And we know it's possible because God has called us to this and he's equipped us to do it, and it's been happening since the first century. Consider Titus chapter 2. 
But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So friends, what's, what's the picture that develops as you read through the New Testament? What marks the church is not isolated individuals on their own unique path, No, what we find is committed and invested relationships. Relationships that involve teaching and instruction in the context of life. So you're all going to hear a lot more about this in the coming days and months and years, Lord willing. But we believe that God is calling Redeemer and has equipped Redeemer to be a multiplying, a reproducing church where everyone is equipped to spiritually invest in someone else. Parents and other godly adults investing in children, older men and women investing in younger men and women, single adults investing in their married friends and the other way around. There are hundreds of scenarios. But this is what we want to push you toward. Meaningful investment in others for your continued growth and theirs. This is God's design. God is pleased when these sorts of relationships characterize a church. I remember on our last trip to Ireland after the church service, I And one of the other pastors with me, we were put in a car to head to lunch. And it was an older lady driving the car. She was in her 80s with a 15-year-old girl. And we started asking them questions, asking them who they were. And we found out that the younger girl uh, wanted to be discipled. So the older woman came to her and invited her. Why don't you just come over and have lunch with me every Sunday? We'll have lunch and then we'll study the Bible together. So this was their normal routine. Is that after church, they would go back to the older lady's house, they would have dinner together, and one would invest in the other. And no doubt it was mutually edifying. Right? But why was it when I heard about that, that seemed strange? That seemed odd. It seems to me as I read Scripture that That kind of a relationship is supposed to be normal. Friends, God, again, God is pleased with these sorts of relationships. And whether it's the older or younger initiating, that's irrelevant. Every believer ought to be seeking out in some way opportunities to invest regularly in another brother or sister. And this doesn't require any official ministry platform. So to be clear, you don't need anybody's permission to, disi- to disciple someone else. All right, just do it. Just do it. And if there's any way we can help you in that process, let us know. We want to help you. 
Our prayer is that all of you will have someone in your life that is helping you set your affections more fully on the God who loves you and gave his son for you. Now again, some of you may be thinking, I could never do this. I have nothing to offer. Well, if you'll permit me to disagree with you, that's simply not true. In the wisdom of God, he has both called and gifted every single believer to invest in and disciple someone else. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. All of us. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Everybody here isn't supposed to be the same. That would be awful. But we bring to the table various personalities and experiences and gifts. And then God says, move toward each other. Build relationships with each other. And in my divine sovereignty, these relationships will flourish and grow, and I will be glorified, and you will grow in your faith. Friends, this is not so much about what you have to offer, but what God, through the grace given to you in Christ, has promised and purposed to do through you for the good and growth of someone else. There is no reference in any text I've read this morning to background, to education, or to personality type. If you have received grace, you can be an instrument of grace. That reality should be both humbling and motivating. God wants to use you in someone else's life for his glory and their joy. Kevin DeYoung reminds us the one indispensable requirement for producing godly, mature Christians is godly, mature Christians. So, in summary, every Christian home should be a discipleship center and every Christian church should be marked by a culture of discipleship. And the two should work together beautifully. So brothers and sisters, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together, what we have talked about this morning should be powerfully driven home by what you see on this table. We are reminded that it is the gospel that brings us together, right? There's, there's nothing else that could transcend all of our differences, all of our quirks. No, it's the gospel that brings us together. But how did each of us hear the gospel? Who spoke those life-changing words to you? Where did you hear about your sin and God's love? Was it from a godly parent? Was it from a grandparent? Was it, was it from your Sunday school teacher? Was it from a friend? Where did you see someone living with joy and hope who could share with you the reason for their joy and hope? 
If you're a Christian here this morning, then somewhere and somehow you heard the gospel. You heard about Christ's broken body and his shed blood. You heard about his resurrection. And by his overcoming grace, you turned from your sin and embraced his free gift of salvation. But someone had to speak the gospel to you. So now as we conclude our time of worship this morning, I want to invite you to approach this table with a deeply thankful heart. And I hope with a growing desire to help others understand the life-changing reality that this table represents. In fact, maybe that's the prayer you need to offer as you prepare to come to the table. God, who is, I've been hesitant, I've been unwilling, I've been scared. Who is it that you want me to invest myself in? Friends, that's not proud. That's not pretentious to think that way. It's very biblical. Who is it, God? Who do you want me to move toward? Help me overcome my fear, my apprehension. Friends, I hope this table will help support what you've heard this morning. Let's pray together.